as we said, we're looking at Matthew chapter 23. And what we're addressing here in this chapter, as we have been going through, is the kind of multiple condemnations on the Pharisees. And we've been talking about how this is addressing the religious elites of the day. This is addressing the people who, for all of their existence, has been kind of formulating this religious ceremony and really emphasizing the religious ceremony versus what Christ is getting at, which is the heart level work that needs to be done, okay? And in this whole chapter, we've been going through, and really the whole book of Matthew as we've been going through it now, we've noticed over and over again all of these kind of condemnations that are leveled out against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious leaders. And we kind of look at them and go, man, you've said everything you could possibly say. And yet he takes a whole chapter, which I know back then there wasn't really a chapter there, but he takes a whole chapter to address, again, every single line by line by line of the religious hypocrisy of these leaders. Okay? And we talked about how it's described as the six or the seven woes against the Pharisees, woes against the religious leaders, woes against those who are leading the entire nation in what should be the holy religious work handed down by Moses through God, and instead you have them orchestrating a religion versus a relationship with God. Remember, everything we talked about with this as we've gone through it has pointed back to there's this thing that's been set up, this idolatry that's been set up, this ideology that has been set up, that should be directing people towards God, and actually what it's doing is leading them further away from God, okay? And that's all within the context of religion. Now, this is not like they're going out and they're worshiping the pagan, idolatrous things of Rome. It's not like they're being pulled away by the the Grecian influence. It's not that they're being driven towards an atheistic, hedonistic, kind of man-self-centered philosophy, These people are being drawn away from God by the very religion that professes to be all about God. Now, that's kind of scary. These people are drawing them away. As we looked at, he made one phrase saying, you yourselves are not entering in. And you're also obstructing others from entering into the kingdom of God. I mean, that's just, that's, that's what you're looking at. And this is all within the context of these people are the religious leaders, okay? So as we're looking at that, it's very, it's very concerning. And that's what I think, again, as we talked about this, why Jesus did this chapter, okay? And what I said was, I think this chapter's in there because this is his last message to his disciples and to the multitudes who are listening to him, where he is specifically and systematically calling out these religious leaders' hypocrisy and falsehood because he's going away. He's moving on. Okay? He's not going to be here in a couple of days. And he knows it. So he's calling out again, once and for all, finality, the records straight, you know, all these things. He's laying it out there. These are the points, people, that I want you to grasp. This is not what I have commanded. What you're seeing here is a fake and phony representation of the righteous and holy things that I have called you to do. You're seeing it twisted for self-righteous purposes. You're seeing it turned around for man's glory versus God's glory. Okay? And so we've gone through all of these verses, hitting on all of these woes, pointing out the fact that what he's trying to get them to see is that everything that you do should be about God. That this whole point of all these things is going back to God and what he has called us to do. It's not just for the sake of ceremony. God is not pleased with your righteous ceremonies, okay? He's not pleased with your, or your self-righteous ceremonies. He's not pleased with your actions that are just there because you're doing them because it makes you look good. He's not pleased with that. As we saw, as he looked in Micah and other places, he said, it's not about the bulls, it's not about the goats, it's not about all the other sacrifices. God is not pleased with your sacrifices, Say, well, that's kind of weird because, God, you told us to do these. It's like, yeah, I told you to do them for me. You're doing them for you. He says, so when you're doing them just for you, get the point. I don't care about the blood of goats and lambs. You aren't giving me anything. 
I own all this stuff. This is all mine anyway. He said, I didn't do this for the purpose of you giving me some dead animals. He said, it was all to reorient your heart and your mind. It was all to point you back to me. It was all to bring you in relationship with me and proximity with me. And ultimately, there were the greater principles of doing mercy, loving justice, and walking humbly with your God. That was the root. So when you have strayed from that root, you have created basically a man-oriented religion where God is not even really present. So here we get down into chapter 23 of Matthew, and we look starting in verse 25. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make the outside of the cup clean and the platter clean, but within you are full of extortion and excess. You blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whited sepulchers or whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful on the outside, but are inside full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witnesses against yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel until the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar." Verily I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent to thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate." For I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So that's the entirety of the rest of the chapter. Okay, and hopefully again, we're going to get to both of those areas and kind of round this out this morning. As we first start off, we went through all this and we labeled out the six different woes that I had listed out. And we can't come to this one, which is what I've called appearance versus actuality. So appearance versus actuality. Remember that when we started all of this from chapter 22 on, you know, the parable of the fig tree or the, not the parable, I'm sorry. The story about the fig tree was the thing that we kind of latched onto and said, this is setting up the entire rest of the discourse with Jerusalem, with the religion, with the Jewish leaders, all of that in there is set up from this one event where Jesus walked up on a fig tree, saw that it should be bearing fruit. It wasn't, he cursed it. And that was like the premise for everything. That's why it's in there. You know, a lot of people would read that parable and go, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why is he cursing fig trees? What did it ever do to him? The reason that that's there is because it is a, a perfect example of the state of the Jewish nation and the religious elites at this time. You look like my nation. You look like my people. You are acting like you should be bearing the fruit that my kingdom should be bearing. And that the inhabitants of my kingdom will bear. But once I get up close to you, I realize you just look like it. You're not really acting like it. So then he goes into the temple. And guess what? Finds a temple filled with a bunch of money changers that he whips and, and drives them out. 
They looked like it, get on the inside, not really acting like it. And then he starts kind of dressing down all of these leaders, the chief priests, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. You're looking like the leaders that I established with Moses way back so many centuries ago, but you most certainly are not acting like it. You're teaching the right stuff. You're still teaching from Moses, and Moses was right, and the law was right, and you're teaching good. But hey, y'all over here, don't act like what they're doing because they're not acting like what they're teaching. They're looking like it. They most certainly are not living like it. So that's where all this started from. And as you kind of go through each one of these sections, you realize "Mm, that's just kind of kept up with the theme, right? All of these woes are keeping up with this theme. Really, as I have broken them out and I've kind of labeled them in six kind of separate things, they're all kind of stemming from the same root, okay? And really the main issue here is these people are looking like it. They are not acting like it, okay? They are looking like it. They are not acting like it. They'll do the things of the law, kind of, sort of. You know, sometimes they have their own little slant on how to get around some troublesome spots in the law. But they'll do the law. They'll make you think they love the law. They will act like they are perfect in the law. But on the inside, on where it really comes from, on the origin of those actions, it's not there. So that's these last two sections. He's kind of hinting at the real kind of paradox between what the outside is doing and what the inside is doing okay so what he sees here as we look at this looking like it and living like it what we let's let's look for a second at luke's account of this okay luke gives kind of the same the same listing out here he gives the same woes just a little bit different order but in luke chapter 11 starting in verse 37, he's, he goes down, and I'll actually skip down to where the the um, where he's really getting at what, what we're talking about here with the, the cleaning of the outside of the platters. 37, he says, And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not washed before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now do you Pharisees make the clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. You fools, did not he that made that which is without, or he that made the outside, not also make the inside? But rather, give alms of such things as you have, and behold, all things are clean to you. Now that's a little bit enigmatic when you read luke's account of it you kind of go okay so what's what are you really getting at here what are you talking about with the outer and the inner i thought i had it down with matthew now you kind of throw these things about giving alms of what you have and making it all clean what are we getting at here okay what is jesus calling out here in both accounts what you have is a people okay that jesus is addressing who are very meticulous, fanatical, fastidious, however you want to put it, type A, whatever, whatever, uh, you know, you label you want to put on it about keeping this portion of the law. Remember last week when we were talking about this, we were talking about how he would strain out the gnats. Okay. So there was a part of this whole Jewish ceremony, which is still kind of in this case, you wash the cup, you wash the platter because you don't want it to be ceremonially unclean. Okay. If a fly landed on that plate, you had to wash it again. Okay, because now it was unclean again. Everything had to be clean and not just physically. It was a spiritual cleanliness that they were hinting at, too. That's why they strained out their drinks, because if you had a little gnat that got in your drink, now it's unclean. And he makes the whole point. You're sitting here straining out these gnats and you're swallowing camels. Okay, you're you're focused so much on these meticulous things and thinking that you're so holy and righteous because of that. And you're swallowing a camel, which also is another unclean animal, which also is the largest unclean animal that they had around. Okay, so he's like, here you are working on this mint and this cumin and you're tithing in these things. You're missing mercy and justice over here. You're straining out gnats. You're swallowing camels okay so he says you're really missing the big picture here all right here he says the same thing you're worried so much about washing these plates and these knives what's going on in your heart you're worried so much about your plate and your cup being clean what's going on on your heart side what's on the inside he says inside you i see ravenings i see wickedness i see ungodliness Yet you're working on the outside? What does that really do for anything? You're scrubbing this plate clean? Who cares? Who cares about the outside when the inside is so corrupted? 
I'll give you a great example of this. You can look at my car today. I washed it like the first time in like a month. Looks great on the outside. You know what I didn't do yesterday? A thing to the inside, okay? So if you got in the car right now, you would see it is full of ravening and wickedness, okay? All right? I'd say my car didn't look as bad as it used to. On the outside, it looks great. You look at that and say, man, that is one clean-looking car. If you open the doors, all that myth would be dispelled immediately. Do we get the picture there? Do we get the correlation there that doesn't match up? Wash that outside all the time. The inside is what really matters. You want to know why? Nobody rides on the outside. Nobody rides on the inside. If I gave somebody a ride right now, they'd get in and go, oh my goodness, this is the nastiest car I've ever seen. I don't want to ride with you. The inside is what matters. So here he says, you are so focused on the outside of this plate, the outside of this cup. You're focused on the ritual religious cleansings. Because that's what people will see immediately. Oh, look at how clean their plates are. How great. Oh, they must be so holy. Look at how righteous they are. Look at their forks. Look at their knives. Look at their cups. Look how everything's so clean. And then they get mad at Jesus who, let's just be honest, was the cleanest on the inside and outside anybody could ever be. Okay? Yet you, you hypocritical Pharisee, you hypocritical religious elite are going to call out the creator of the world, the holiest man to ever walk on the face of this earth and say, well, you didn't wash before you ate. You're unclean. Do we understand how blasphemous that statement is? And it's all because Jesus didn't do what the religion of the day dictated he should do. Same thing when Jesus was walking through the cornfields and they accused him of working on the Sabbath day. Same thing when he healed somebody on the Sabbath and they said, you've broken the law. It's always funny to me because I could just, you could just see Jesus like hanging his head and shaking to go, dude, I wrote the law. All right. I am the law. Right. You can't get any more than me. Okay. So you can try to call me out all you want to. We can really throw down if you want to. We can really get serious if you want to. But right now you calling me out. That's a little funny. That's not even like the pot calling the kettle black. That's, we're, we're, I mean, that's beyond anything you could possibly imagine. For them here to call out Jesus and accuse that he had broken the law by not washing before he ate is beyond blasphemous against the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. And he says, guys, you're so worried about the outside. Have you ever considered the inside? So as he says, did God not make the outer and the inner? Did he not make both? Which would mean he's more concerned about both than just one. He's not looking at you going, oh, you washed your hands so good. Atta boy. Good for you. Look how holy you are because you put some palm olive on your hands. Don't worry about all that stuff inside. Don't worry about the wickedness, the adultery, the hatred, the murderous intents of your heart. Don't worry about all that. That doesn't matter. It's all on the inside. As long as the outside looks good, I'm happy. You know that everything with these washings is fully and purposefully capable in the easiest way. I mean, my three-year-old can crawl up to a sink and wash her hands. Not really a whole lot of work to be done there. There's not a whole lot of self-sacrifice. There's not a whole lot of intentive meditation on the issue. There's no kind of correction. I mean, you can do it routinely. You can do it without thought. You can do it without focus. Outside looks great. Inside is still a wreck. Do we see the paradox in this? He's saying the outside things that you're doing... The outside things that you're kind of cleaning up to make yourself look like you are something that you are not. To make yourself look like you are something that you are not. You would be able to walk away from this dinner table and go, look how holy, look how righteous I am because I washed. But what Jesus is saying, yeah, but on the inside, you ain't really washed. Okay. 
On the inside, you're wicked. On the inside, you're ravenous. On the inside, you're ungodly. On the inside, you're antithesis to everything that I have laid out for you. So the thought that is put forward most of the time is that the wicked, the evil, the ungodly, what we see, okay, out in this world, what we would anticipate from this situation, as he's calling them here, he says, you're wicked, you're unrighteous, you're unholy, you got the outside all cleaned up. For some reason, we get in our minds sometimes that these people, who we would call or who Christ would call ungodly and wicked and all these things, you would say they would be as far from anything related to God or religion or anything like that. You mean these would be the people. It wouldn't be that they would be anywhere close proximity to the things of God. They're going to be out at, you know, seedy places. They're going to be murdering people. They're going to be stealing things all the time. That's what the wicked do. That's what the ungodly look like. These people weren't there. He's not sitting down to dinner with them at a strip club. He's not going out here or going into some seedy places. He's sitting down in the Pharisee's house. They're doing everything that God commanded them to do in the law. You're supposed to clean these things. Yet they're wicked. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't match up with our view of it. That doesn't match up with how we see things. We like a nice, good separation where all the wicked people are down, you know, over here. And then all of the righteous people are over here. It's the righteous people who do good things. It's the righteous people who look like they're doing good things, I guess I should say. It's the righteous people who are in church. It's the righteous people who are saying those things. It's, these are the, those are the only people that can do that. And I'm telling you that what Jesus is pointing out to us is there's plenty of religious and righteous looking people who are clean on the outside but not on the inside. There are plenty of people who can do religious actions that make you or even themselves think that they are doing right. But on the inside, they still have a lot of issues. And that plays on two different levels. And we're going to look at one of those in the next Woe, But in this one in particular, when we think about this paradox that Jesus is laying out here, okay, and we think about it with ourselves and we think about it in looking at others, okay, what we have gone back through in all these cases is there's an issue with religion versus relationship, okay? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. You can be a part of religion and absent of the relationship, okay? And that goes on both levels. That goes on people who have been born again, changed. The Spirit of God is dwelling with them. And all they really care about is the surface level holiness, the surface level religion. They want to just do their small little part and then check out and be happy with that. And Christ is going, no, I'm sorry. I've called you to relationship. I haven't called you to just religious actions. I didn't save you so you could look good. I didn't die for you and, and born you again and change your life so that you could just kind of exist here doing whatever you wanted to, but flipping me some platitudes of religion every so often. So that's not what I got. That's not what I did this for. This whole like life eternal changing thing. Okay. I didn't do that just so you could flip me some religion. I've had my fill of religion. I have been sitting through religion for centuries with the Jews. I'm not just interested in a religious practice. I want to see some change. I want relationship. That's why in Ephesians when he tells us, I have not just born you again to save you. I've born you again or saved you for heaven. I've born you again and saved you and made you my workmanship so that you would do good works while you're here. I want a relationship. I want you living like you know me and I've done something for you. I want you living in a way that testifies to the works that I have done in you. I don't want you, I didn't do these things, I didn't do all of this so that you could just say, hey, I'm, I go to church. Hey, I own a Bible. Hey, I know some fun things to say, but inside your heart, you still hate people. You still desire wicked things. You're still after those things. You still don't think those things are wrong. 
Remember, that's a lot of what we've been talking about, is that there's a problem with us as Christians saying that we believe these things that Christ taught, but then not actually living them out. Or getting yourself into situations on Facebook where you're making statements that don't match up with what Jesus ever said. And Jesus is going, that's not relationship with me. That's just religion. You're just throwing out there, oh yeah, I'm part of the Christian religion. And I'm a part of this denomination. And this is what we believe. But then you walk out there, again, like the Pharisees, your teachings are really good. Jesus' teachings, really good. But your actions aren't matching up with it. Well, now we have a problem. Either Jesus' teachings aren't really that good, or we aren't really following him. There's no relationship there. There's none of us seeking to be what he has called us to be. So the solution that Jesus gives here in Luke for this paradox is he makes that statement again, which is a little enigmatic, a little, you know, you kind of go, okay, what are you really getting at there? When he says, give alms of such as you have, and then everything will be clean. Okay. Say, okay, I got it. I figured it out. You gave me another religious thing to do. Another religious marker. If I just give alms, I can then be holy. Okay, I got it. You think that's what Jesus was saying? You think he was giving the little solution there? I know your washings don't make you holy, but giving alms do. Therefore, give alms and you'll be good. Does that remind you of anything? Like the rich young ruler? What must I do to be saved? To to inherit eternal life? And he says, take care of everything, you know, keep the law. He goes, oh, I've done all that from my youth up. Law-based religious practices. I've done all that from my youth up. Okay, good. Now I want you to sell all that you have, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. Okay, that was religious practice number two. If I just sell all I have, give it to the poor, take up my metaphorical cross, you know, and follow after Jesus. Now I've figured it out. Eternal life is mine. Happiness forever. I've figured out the other religious practice that I hadn't known before and now I'm set. But that's not what Jesus was implying with that, was it? Taking up your cross, getting rid of your riches for this guy, giving them to the poor, okay? Doing those things, taking up your cross, those are all terms of relationship. What he's talking about there is, I want you to get rid of these riches because they're a stumbling block for you. You want to know how I know? Because when I tell you to do this, you're not going to do it. You're going to start crying and weeping saying, I've got so much, how can I ever give it up? And Jesus knew that before he told it to him. So it wasn't just the act of giving more to charity that was going to change this guy's life. It was getting rid of the things that stopped him from being in relationship with Christ. With taking up the cross, which is the the same thing Jesus did. Do you not notice how weird it is that Jesus before his crucifixion is telling people to take up a cross? What does that even mean? I mean, these cats have not seen Jesus literally take up a cross yet. That was a form of punishment and, and execution. Got to imagine they're going, I don't really get this whole cross thing. Like literally, like throw it over my shoulder and let's walk with it. What does that do about my eternal life? Instead, Jesus is saying, this is relational. Take up your cross and do what? Follow me. Come walk with me. Eat with me. Dine with me. Talk with me. Live your life with me. That's where you'll see eternal life bearing fruit. But he didn't want to do that, did he? He didn't want to give up his goods. He loved those things. Man, those were awesome. He liked being rich. He liked being young and fabulous and everybody calling his name and all those things. That's what he liked. So he didn't want to give that up. So the same thing here with this guy, as he's talking to him, he says, with the Pharisees, he says, look, give alms to the poor. Which again, if you think about the the Old Testament law stuff, there really was not a precept or a commandment that you were to specifically give to the poor in this kind of 
I guess you could say, out of the norm way. We've talked about it a little bit on Deuteronomy. We've talked about how there were prescriptions given every third year for a tithe, okay? And that tithe was to be a little different. When you gave this tithe, it was not just to go to the Levitical priesthood. It was to be distributed to the poor and the needy and the refugees and the widows and all those people. So there were, I mean, that was in there. Okay? And you weren't supposed to get all the stuff out of your field. You were to leave whatever's left so that the poor could come get it. So those were kind of there. But these kind of things he's telling the rich young ruler and telling this Pharisee about you need to be giving to the poor. And, and, that, and, that, and that will create change. But some people would interpret it that way. If you just give it to the poor, that's my religious action. And that will create the change that I want. Then I will be holy in and out. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus did not come here to just give us a couple of more little religious practices that are going to reorient our life and now we're on straight. We just had the wrong religious functions is what it was. The, the giving of alms he is, in, he is talking about here. Okay? When, if you think about what that is implying, in typical... Typical patterns, okay, when we give to the poor, you have two ways that can play out. You give to the poor because you want a tax break, or you give to the poor because you have a true heart of compassion and mercy and you care about them, all right? You give to the poor because it's just the thing you do in religion. It's just the thing you do apart. Look, so giving a tithe-type thing to a needy person... That's in Christianity, that's in Judaism, that's in Islam, okay? One of the five pillars of Islam is paying the zakat, which is a tithe that's supposed to go to the poor. So religious ceremony of giving to the poor does not mean anything, okay? It does not imply anything, it does not create some kind of holiness within you. There are plenty of religions that teach that, okay? What Jesus is implying and what Jesus is impressing on him is that let the heart... Be changed. Let the heart be one of compassion and mercy and love for your neighbor. Out of that heart then, let some external actions flow like giving to the poor. Okay? Because when the heart is different, the outside will be different also. That's what he's getting at. He says God likes, God created both. God wants both holy. He does not accept half. He does not say, as long as you got the outside looking good and you look like a holy roller on the outside, don't matter what your heart's. Over and over again in the very first teachings that we saw with Jesus, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what is his whole orientation? He says, you've kept the outside really good. Thou shalt not murder. You haven't physically killed anyone. But you hate your brother in your heart. Guess what? You're guilty. Oh, I haven't actually committed adultery. I've never touched another woman. But in your heart, you've lusted after a right. Well, yeah, I am guilty of that. Well, guess what? You committed adultery. Well, I haven't really stolen anything from my neighbor. I haven't physically taken it. Yeah, but you have coveted it in your heart. And guess what? You're guilty. In all of these areas where your heart is guilty, you are guilty. So he reorients way back in the first teachings. The inner man matters. In fact... In one case in particular, he said, you can worry about what goes in as being unclean all you want to through your mouth. He says, it's really out of your heart that the wicked and evil things come. He says, out of your heart, you speak wicked things out of your mouth. Out of your heart where wickedness and evil and hate and anger are dwelling, you are then speaking that. It's coming out of your mouth. It's living out in your actions. It's like, so you can work on the outside all you want to, and you can get that outside looking really good. It's the inside that matters to God. And he says, when the inside is corrected, when the inside is full of compassion and mercy and love for your neighbor and love for God, love the Lord your God with all your heart. He says, then the external actions will bring themselves forth. Holy actions on the inside, holy thoughts on the inside, holy works on the inner man will produce holy actions, holy works, holy thoughts on the outer man. That's the, that's the right direction of these, okay? Getting at the point that you can't clean up the outside enough to create an internal change. You can't do enough religious practices on the outside 
to get an internal change. Rather, what Jesus would say is, get the internal change first. Then all the external change comes from that. That's why he says, I have born you again. I have changed you. I have made you my workmanship to do good works. That had to come first. We saw in Deuteronomy as we were looking last Wednesday night in chapter 29 and chapter 30 where he said, repent, return to me. I will then circumcise your heart and then you will do good works. Okay, it's a big paraphrase of what he said there from that old chapter that, you know, has like 60 something, you know, anyway. So the big paraphrase, all right, is that there has to, God is got, has got to work some stuff on the inside. God has got to change some things with your heart. And we're speaking about even post being born again and having the Holy Spirit. Guess what? We still have to have God to cut our hearts and change some problems with our hearts. That's what we were getting at. There's a lot of professing Christians who will say things about their neighbors in the Middle East, in Africa, and things like that that don't match up with what Jesus said in loving your neighbor. There's things that they say about their wives that don't match up with Jesus saying, love your wife. There's things that are said in Christian communities that don't match up with what Jesus taught us to do. Guess what? We need him to work on our hearts. We need him to go back with the scalpel and cut some stuff away. We need to get bitterness cut away. We need to get hate cut away. We need to get anger cut away. We need to get implanted with love our neighbors, love God, love each other, love our enemies. Those kind of things need to be rooted and grounded in our hearts. And we need God to do that. So God says, turn back to me and I'll work on your heart. So here he's giving them kind of this paradox and calling out what is going on here. He says, look, guys, you're worried about the outside. The inside is what's really important here. The inside is what you need to be working on. Now, there's another level to this with them, though. There's a lot of these Pharisees who are doing this in a deceptive manner. Okay, the Pharisees here are doing this in a deceptive manner. All right. And it may not be all of them, but there's a lot of them that this is the case. Okay. What, that's He goes through this all the time. You enlarge the borders of your garment. You've got these long tassels. You make long prayers so everybody can look at you and praise you and honor you and glorify you for how righteous you are. But you know on the inside that you don't really live that life. You know deep down that you're doing that to deceive You know you're doing all that. So people will look at you. So people will comment on how holy and righteous you are. There is a deception in that. That these religious leaders are purposefully doing these things like tithing mint, tithing cumin, making long prayers, wearing these specific garments, doing all these things so that they can get people to believe that they are righteous and holy. Okay? That is deception. And Christ is calling out their deception. He's telling them, you can fool the world. You can fool all these other Jews. You can make them think you really are a righteous and holy person. But you cannot fool me. I know exactly what your heart is. I know exactly where you stand with this. I know exactly the motives behind all of these things. You can't fool me. So for us, what implications does this have? Well, for us, it's the same thing. We may not have the same kind of malicious intent. Maybe we do. I I am not deceived at all that there are people who put on holy garments, quote unquote, to deceive people into thinking they really are more than they are. Okay? I mean, not to call out any names or anything, but there's a lot of prosperity people, okay, that I know put on a lot of holy garments to get people to think a lot about who they are, to draw people into things. So there's a lot of there's a lot of that that goes on, especially within the Christian circle. Okay? 
There's a lot of us who will put on the religious ceremonies, who will say the right-sounding words, who will watch the right movies, who will read from the right Bible, to put all that out there to make ourselves think that we're doing all we have to do. Okay? Again, may not be a deceptive thing. You may not be doing it because you're trying to get people out on the street corner to praise you for how awesome you are. But it is certainly deceptive for ourselves. Especially if we think that's all God requires of us. Oh, I just didn't watch R-rated movies. God's pleased with how, out, how the outside of my cup looks. Oh, I just didn't say certain words. God's really pleased with that. Inside, full of wickedness, full of ravenings, full of hatred, full of self-deceit, full of selfish glorification. But man, my outside looks perfect. I'll wash that car up really good, okay? But what we need to remember and what we've been hinting at and talking at, external actions do not mean internal change. External actions do not mean internal change. So what we have to work on with ourselves and what we need to be asking, most importantly, what we need to be asking God for is internal change. God, I see how my wickedness comes out and how I talk and speak to my wife. I need you to change my heart, okay? I don't just I can't just go to like a wife and husband conference and come up with seven new steps to love my wife better and think I've accomplished it. It's a heart issue. Well, how I'm dealing with my children. If I go to another Paul Tripp conference, I'll get the right parenting stuff and I'll be good. Guess what? It doesn't fix it. I love Paul Tripp. Okay? He's got some great stuff. Still doesn't fix the problem. I can go to as many of his conferences as I want to. He can lay hands on me and whatever. And I can still be the same because I need God to change my heart. I can still be impatient. And then I can practice all the self-meditation tips I want to. External change will not, or external actions will not bring the internal change I need. Because the internal change I need is God to fix my wicked heart. That's why when we say pray for patience, and He says patience comes through tribulation, and then He gives you tribulation to fix your patience, it's working an internal change. It wasn't that he said, okay, well, here you go, Adam. Here's seven steps to a more patient lifestyle. Take ten breaths. Drive slower. Smell the roses. They're all good things, yeah. Maybe not the driving slower part. But those external actions won't lead to internal change. You know who I need to change my heart? Jesus. I need some internal change i got to be going to Him in prayer saying, Lord, I need you to change this about my life. I recognize it, okay? That's the only way we're going to get internal change. So then we look to try to close out, because so, I told y'all I was going to get done. So here you have the final condemnation, okay? The final condemnation that He gives to them as He says, You are like whited sepulchers. You are like whitewashed tombs. You know, if you think about like New Orleans or if you've ever been somewhere where they have the tombs and the mausoleums that are above ground. You know, here we put everybody in the ground. Down in New Orleans, everybody gets washed away if you put them in the ground. So what do they do? They have mausoleums. They have little brick edifices or whatever where they can put in the caskets and, you know, they're creepy but they you know these same thing back here okay they had the same kind of thing little mausoleums little tombs that's where you put your family members when they passed away well just like we do on decoration day you go out and you put new flowers on it well they would go out and they'd whitewash the tombs let's make them look pretty don't make them look creepy okay make them look pretty so you go out and you paint them and you make the outside look good guess what it didn't change anything about who's in there guess who's in there a dead person Still creepy, all right? Still there. You can make the outside look as good. The inside's going to look like a bad Indiana Jones movie, okay? And you can't change that. Look, decay, death, degradation. Those things don't look pretty, do they? 
And he's saying, you can clean the outside of that tomb all you want to. You can make it look fantastic. I mean, you can like bedazzle it and you can put rhinestones. You can do whatever you want to that thing. Guess what? The fact will still remain the inside is dead, decay, degradation. Doesn't look pretty. So he says, that is you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You have cleaned the outside, you've put the whitewash on, you've made everybody think you look like a really clean, holy, righteous person, but I am telling you, you are deceived. The inside of you is nothing but dead men's bones. He says, Woe to you who have built the tombs and the prophets and garnished the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in our father's days, we would have not been a partakers in their blood. Now, this is getting into kind of that deception model again, really quickly. Getting into the deception model we were talking about, there is outward or external public deception. And we talked about that. That's kind of what a lot of these Pharisees were doing. He says that right there. You are whitewashed sepulchers. Even so, also outwardly, you appear righteous unto men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. That's public deception. You're doing that on purpose. You are a wolf in sheep's clothing. You're trying to get them to think that you are righteous and holy. You are not. And you're doing it so that people will say, oh, look how righteous and holy they are. Let's follow them. But there's also a self-deception that gets into this as well. Remember, we talked about this briefly from Matthew chapter 7 where he says... In the last days, or in that days, many will come up to me and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done these works in your name? Have we not done all these things in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You say, well, how does that make sense? Because what you have, not in every case, but especially in this case as he's talking to, you have a bunch of people who have deceived themselves to think that if they just did enough outward actions... Well, they deserve a place there with Christ. If I just did enough good things, I deserve this. Haven't I done all these things in your name? In reality, no, you haven't. You've done them all in your name, in yourselves' names, for yourself's glory. You haven't done them in my name. You have taken my name in vain and done them, but you haven't really done them for my glory. You haven't done them in my honor. That's why Jesus says, I never knew you. You didn't really ever know me. You weren't trying to know me. You were trying to know yourself. You were trying to use me and my glory and my honor to bring you glory and honor. And that's a self-deception. And guess what? It can still be that case where, again, we think that we can indebt God to our lives because we do enough good things, quote-unquote. Well, God, look, I come to church all the time. I read my Bible. I give to the poor. I do all these. God, you owe me some stuff. That is a self-deception. God doesn't owe you anything. You owe everything to God. God does not owe you anything. I don't care how many quote-unquote good works you think you do. God doesn't owe you anything for that. The only thing we're owed of God is wrath, destruction, and hell. Okay, that's it. We're most certainly owed that. And there's not enough enough good works, enough tithes, enough days in the month or the year or eternity to make up for the destruction that we have sown in our lives and everywhere around us. I mean, we messed up this in whole creation. God had it just right and we broke the thing. Okay, you might have broken like an iPhone. How about breaking creation? That's pretty bad. All right. There's not enough good stuff you can do to ever get back that, okay? You can take that to every iPhone repair shop you want to. You'll never get that bad boy fixed, okay? And even if we did, it'd still be like with our iPhones. They don't work right ever again, do they? So that's the, that's the premise with this. You can do as much good stuff as you want to. It will never indebt God to you. We're still in the hole. So we don't need to be deceived ourselves. We need to realize exactly where we stand in this big cosmic scheme of things. And there's also a disturbing condemnation that he gives here with them. And something, again, there's a pitfall for all of us as well. Notice how they said, oh, if we had just been back there, we wouldn't have done what they did. I'm not going to be like my father. I'm not going to be like my ancestors. I'm going to be different. 
If I'd have been there, I would have answered right. If I'd have been there, I would have done these things. This is a common thing for us as well, okay? But there's a lot deeper stuff going on here with these Jews, okay? Notice how he says, you are a bunch of hypocrites because you garnish their tombs, you whitewash their tombs, you act like you wouldn't have done these things. In reality, you would have. And by the way, you do. And you will. That's the other thing. He gives them a foreshadow into their future over the next several decades. He says, you're going to do this. You may say you're not, but I'm telling you, you are. This is kind of like what Peter did. Peter said, Lord, I'll never abandon you. I'll never leave you. If I have to die, I'll die with you. And Jesus is like, dude, three crows of the rooster and you're out of this mug. Like, you're not even going to last that long. You're not going to last a night, let alone a year, let alone eternity. And here he's looking at these Jews. He's like, guys, you say you wouldn't have killed them. I'm about to send you more prophets, more messengers, more people. I'm going to send you my disciples who are going to preach my word and repentance and Christ. And they're going to preach these things to do. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to kill them. You're going to stone them. You're going to cast them out of your synagogues. You're going to scourge them. So you can make platitudes all day about how awesome you are. And you would have never done that. I'm going to give you another shot at it. Let's see how you handle it. And I'm already telling you, you're going to do exactly what your fathers did. You want to know why? Because just like your fathers were hard-hearted and obstinate and stubborn and fake and pretenders and disobedient, guess what you are? Hard-hearted, stubborn, stubborn, obstinate, fake. Same thing. You're just carrying on in the same family tradition with this. And again, as we have delineated many times with this, there are people... In fact, there's a lot of people in a lot of cases within the nation of Israel who are not God's people, okay? They're not the people God knew before the foundation of the world that he has saved and died for and loved and all. They're not, okay? He makes that clear. And in many cases, he cleans the house out a lot. Now, they are still by the promise given to Abraham. They are descendants of Abraham and they are part of that natural physical covenant that he made with them. But there's a greater, bigger spiritual covenant that they are not a part of. And what you see is this kind of falls through. The same people who fell out in the wilderness, the same people who have doubted him over and over again, the same people that are throwing up idols to Baal and doing all these things and rebelling like Korah and all this stuff. All of these people over and over and over again throughout their history that God strikes down. He looks at him here and says, guess what? You're keeping up the family tradition. And he says, even you are going to kill prophets. Even you are going to stone apostles. Even you are going to kill my messengers. And he says, wherefore, you will be witnesses against yourselves because I'm going to send these people to you. And guess what? You're going to do the same thing to them. So you're bearing witness of your own hatred for God's messengers. So you're going to fill up the measure of your fathers. And this is the this is the nail in the coffin. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Your fate has well been sealed. Okay? Wherefore, behold, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will crucify, and some of them you will kill, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from cities to cities. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Now, what is just amazingly over-the-top profound about that, that I think blows my mind is that he is ascribing to this generation of Jews all the righteous blood that has ever been shed on the earth going back to Abel. Jews didn't exist when Abel was killed. That is a crazy, profound condemnation. 
And as we've talked about, there's been one story throughout the whole Bible. You know, if we talk about Old Testament and New Testament like it's two stories, it's not. All right? There's no division with that. God's had the same story going the whole time. All right? Same redemptive story, same reconciliation story. Everything's been the same. Okay? Different people, different players, different times, different ages. But it's all been the same. And what he's kind of implying here, the same wicked heart that slew Abel, which, by the way, was Cain, all right? Someone we don't normally ascribe with Judaism, right? He's saying you're basically in league with Cain. And the same blood that Cain shed of righteous Abel, and we've kind of talked about this again on Wednesday nights as we talked about the righteous blood thing, that God over and over will say things like, hey, every ounce of righteous blood spilled in the land cries out to me. And I hold it accountable. He's saying going all the way back to Abel up until present day into the future when you're going to kill my prophets, even them. All that blood, all that righteous blood is going to be held to your account. Now, Zacharias, son of Berechias, was a priest. And we don't have time to read it, but Second Chronicles is where you can find it, verses 20 through 22. And he was one who was a prophet who was speaking the things of God and condemning the current nation. And guess what? He was killed at the altar. Now, what is interesting about that and why he pulls that guy out, I think is because Abel is pre-Judaism, pre-temple, pre-all that stuff. He says, righteous blood shed there. Zacharias was killed literally in the temple. He was killed in the religious center by a bunch of religious people. Whose number one commandment is you shall not kill. And not only did you kill the guy, you killed him in the temple. That's like the most unholiest thing you could ever possibly do. Except killing Jesus on the cross. You killed the son of God. You condemned him in your religious establishment. You put him to death when he was righteous. And all that righteous blood will be held on your account. Remember the scene when Pilate is condemning Christ. And he says, I wash my hands of his blood. And what did the Jews say? Let his blood be on us and on our children. Righteous blood attributed to them and their children. And guess what? God did hold them accountable for that. Okay? So you see how all this lines up. But that is that right there... That section right there, that is a complete nail in the coffin, you're done condemnation, okay? And I think as we've talked about a little bit on Wednesday nights and up here, we've talked about this, that there is kind of a, a, a cleaning up, cleaning out that God is doing here, okay? He is breaking down the false religious edifice and he is pushing forward his kingdom with its trueness, with its true identity, with what true faith and following of Christ and God looks like, what the actions of the true look like. And he's pushing that. And he's getting out of the way all this fake stuff. He's getting out of the way all the religious ceremony and all the fake religious practices. He's saying all that stuff that they're doing, it only breeds their own self-glorification. I'm going to show you what true religion looks like. It's going to be taking care of the fatherless, the widows, and the needy. It's going to be keeping yourself unspotted from this world. It's going to be relationship versus religion. It's going to be heart interchange versus just outer actions. It's going to be true discipleship versus destruction. These are the things that make up the kingdom. So how many of these condemnations, as we close with this, how many of these condemnations are we guilty of? Where do we fall into it? Are we in it for the fame? Are we in it through faith? Are we creating disciples or are we leading people to destruction? Are we in this for religion or are we in this for relationship? These are things that we need to consider. Okay, this is what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We talked about that. It's not just having a lot of platitudes. It's not having a lot of religious stuff. It's not having a Jesus fish on your car. It's not having a cross in your house. It's not having a KJV Bible on your nightstand. 
It is about relationship with Jesus Christ. I follow him. I give my life for him. I am in constant communication with him through reading the word. Okay. Through prayer, through righteous actions. Those are all in it. But the origin of it is different and the expectation of it is different. It's not about me. It's about him and what he did for me. It's not about my actions. It's about his actions and what they did in me. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. It's about discipleship. It's about following with him. So remember, as we close with that, remember that it's inner changes that we need. Okay. And that's, I think, probably the big takeaway out of all of this. What we look at and what we seek the most in all of this is that what, what I think as the, as we talk about all of this stuff that we've gone through with Matthew, what I've gotten back to is that the problem that we have in our nation right now, the problem that we have is not some kind of atheistic abundance. The problem that we have is not that we don't have prayer in schools. Okay. The problem we have is that we have fake churches. We have people who come to church, they get their good feeling from it and leave, and there's no change on the inside. It's religious practice. That's what's killing our nation. Because you know what? There's no gospel witness in that. There's no external actions with that. There's no loving our neighbor in that. In fact, it's all about me. I come in, I get my dose of church, and I go out. And then I feel really good about myself. But what's the problem is, is that the nation around us is burning. People will say, oh, well, if we just had prayer in schools, that would fix it. No, it wouldn't. You're telling me my third grade teacher praying for my kid is going to somehow change the world? No. They're doing it as a fake religious thing anyway. It's not about that. The problem is the church is not impressing to live like Jesus commanded us to live. And then the people seeking that change in their hearts to do that. You say, well, is prayer going to... Let me just lay it out there. Is prayer in school going to fix the fact that you don't love your wife like Christ commanded you to? No. So guess what breaks up the family? Guess why the family goes the way it does? It's not because you didn't have prayer in school. It's not because you weren't reading the right Bible. It's because you're not living out. You haven't asked for the change that you need in your life. That's what's killing the families. Okay? It's not Game of Thrones on Netflix. You can turn that bad boy off. You don't even have to watch it. Okay? What's killing it is husbands love your wives. Well, why? Because Christ loved the church and he told you to do it. Fathers, train up your children. Nurture them. I always love that word, being there with the fathers. You want to know why? Because everybody looks at it and says, no, fathers are there to teach their kids how to play football and discipline. Yet God doesn't say wives or mothers nurture your children. It says fathers nurture your child. Fathers nurture your children in the love, in the correction, in the discipline of the Lord. Well, guess why children aren't growing up and living the way that they should? Why we have problems with kids in our lives? Because either they don't have a father or the father isn't doing what he's called to do. Same thing with wives. Loving and honoring their husbands. Where are you going to get that change in the family unit? By a Christian-based self-help course? No. By Christ. Doing what needs to be done in our hearts. And then I promise you, if we as the church are living out what Christ commanded us to do, we will most certainly have an effect on the people around us, whether that's our families, on our friends, on our neighbors, on our schools, on our schoolmates that are there with us, on all these things. We'll have that change. We'll have that influence. I mean, he already said it. If you do good works, there are going to be people who see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's there. He says, but you got to be doing what I've got, I've called you to do. You can't pawn it off on somebody else. You can't say it's the school's fault because they're teaching, you know, evolution. You can't say that's not, that's not where this is coming from. The problem is us. The problem is us. So we have to make sure that we are doing what Christ has commanded us to do. And what we need is a whole lot of help from Jesus, right? That's what we need every day. And guess what? It's never going to end. It's never going to get to the point where you can sit down and go, okay, 
God, whoo, you did the work. I'm perfect. I'm going to ride out the rest of my life because you've done all that needs to be done and I'm just one good-looking, one holy dude, and that's it. There is always, I'm, I'm always astounded at how you feel like you got two steps forward and you realize there's still like 20 more to go. And to some people that would sound very pessimistic. All I say is, is that's just a good relationship builder with your Father in Heaven. Because you know you haven't gotten so perfect you can look at Him and say, take the day off, God, I'm good. You get to continually go to His throne and ask Him to continue to work in your life to make you a more, a, I'm going to say it, a more better <laughs> A betterer person, a more gooder person, a more compassionate person, a more loving person, a kinder person, a person like Christ. So may God bless us to work on that.